Our next item on the agenda will just be a um, panel discussion on open banking, um, uh, blockchain in the future of financial, South African financial services. Um, Kudzai Chigiji will be taking us through this panel and the, discussing the topic in a bit of a more in-depth manner and introducing the panelists. So I hope you all are looking forward to it. Um, please my welcome Kudzai to the stage. Okay, so I'm sure when you saw the program, you were trying to figure out why are we talking about open banking, let alone why are we talking about blockchain at an actual society banking seminar. It seemed a bit out there when I first proposed it to my team, but um, some of you will know I just spent the past year in the UK, and some of what I was doing was interacting with the fintech scene in Shoreditch, Canary Wharf, interacting with their regulator to understand exactly what they've been doing in that space. Initially, I knew absolutely nothing about it, and I guess it's been a great um, educational journey in um, understanding all the activity that's happening in that space. Some of you will know it's really the hub of fintech development in the world. We take the cup for insurtech, but they take the cup for fintech. And it was very interesting for me because I found a lot of people with an actual background that were working in those fintechs. So I wanted to understand what was it that was taking, and it turns out that we are being disrupted by fintech. Some of you will know that, it seems very obvious, but I wanted to know what they were doing differently. And I stumbled across the concept of open banking. And really that is simply about making, I guess, data more available to everyone um, so that fintechs can use that data. That's banking data more available to everyone, so, so fintechs can use that information and um, develop their ideas using um, banking data from across the scene. And then blockchain really was around um, how do you make that information more easily usable throughout the ecosystem. But as you will see, I've got a heavy hitting panel um, and uh, I'd like to introduce them and to bring them on stage. So if you could please come and join me on stage. Um, so we've got Arif Ismail from the Reserve Bank, Preven Moodley from TransUnion, Yaliwe Soko from UABA, and Chris Hamilton from Bank. So if, do you mind coming to join me on stage and then I will read through your bios. Just please bear with us as we get them situated on stage. And I guess while they're um, getting settled, I'll go through their bios. Um, very impressive lot, so this might take a moment, bear with me. Um, and I guess, yeah, it'll give you context as to why they're joining us. Um, you'll note that we, I, I, I don't think any of them are actuaries. So you've got a lot to learn. So we've got Arif Ismail, he's the head of FinTech at the South African Reserve Bank. He's, he's responsible for setting policy direction on crypto assets in South Africa, the implementation of hubs and sandboxes, and for central bank experimentation on central bank issued digital currencies. He currently co-chairs the Intergovernmental FinTech Working Group leading the charge to revise policy stances on FinTech. He was head of the oversight um, payment systems from 2015-2017. He's also responsible for South African national payments System Strategy Vision 2025, and he's a member of the BIS Working Group on Digital Innovations and member of the FSB Financial Innovation Network. Then we've got Arif with us here, holds a BSc in Mathematics and Physics, an MBA through Gibbs, and a DBA on Strategic Leadership and Transformation. His area of interest spans the change domain and includes a focus on complex adaptative systems, social cognition, and leadership the um, theory. Preven Moodley has been an active member of the financial services industry for over eight years, garnering experience across the consumer credit, commercial trade credit, and public sector industries. He's also worked for FMB, one of South Africa's leading banks, as you'll know, and um, previously as a senior advisor in risk solutions at TransUnion. His portfolio includes the design and implementation of new and innovative solutions within commercial risk management space. 
is responsible for driving business development within TransUnion's direct marketing, consumer acquisitions, existing customer collection strategies, business intelligence, fraud prevention, and regulatory compliance capabilities. That's a full plate. <laughs> Preven currently heads TransUnion Africa's consulting division, and he's an experienced con um, consultant. He's demonstrated a history of working in the information technology and services industry, and he's skilled in management, risk management, business process um, improvement, analytics, and financial services. Then we've got Yaliwe here, who I've met through the year, uh, through our interactions with the blockchain environment across the globe. She's the chairwoman of the United Africa Blockchain Association, a DEF CON scholar, and um, some of you will probably have seen her on the speaking um, circuit for blockchain within Africa. She's also the founder of Essence Crypto Consultants and United Africa Women in Blockchain. She's one of the very few African women to be fully involved in blockchain and cryptocurrencies. She took up interest in blockchain technology as early as to, um, early 2016, and has worked as a freelance Bitcoin and cryptocurrency consultant for an online in, um, investment firm. With the help of her qualification as a training facility and assessor, she's been able to create a number of tutorials and um, education material and has currently completed a blockchain and cryptocurrency learner guide for beginners. I've gone through that and it's thoroughly impressive. She's currently an ICO advisor for a number of projects, and with her background in finance and administration, she served as financial administrator and operations manager for reputable companies such as Wando Trading, um, Wando PLC, Kuluvoyo Consultancy, and Wellness, as well as Blandford Africa. And she also has a background in oil and gas, so we've got a very um, sort of good breadth as well there. And she's currently a member of the DevCon Scholars Program, which is the world's premier blockchain program for the Ethereum community. Then yes, finally we've got uh, Chris Hamilton. Some of you will know him, he's the CEO of BankServe, the South African Payments Clearing House. Uh, he relocated to Johannesburg from Sydney two and a half years ago. I don't know if it's too late to say welcome. During his time as CEO of the Australian Payments Clearing Association, APCA, he played a coordinating role for major payment system development such as the establishment of the Australian Payments Council and the design and development of the new payments platform, with uh, the country now deploying one of the most advanced payment systems in the world. He is Australian by birth and started his career as a solicitor specializing in security industry law, and he has a wide-ranging experience in the Australian financial services, including 11 years with the Australian Stock Exchange, where he's a member of the executive team during the world first demutualization and listing of ASX, and 10 years as CEO of Australian Payments Clearing Association, now known as the Australian Payments Network. Wow, that was a mouthful. But uh, as you can hear, these are the right people to tell us about open <laughs> banking <laughs> and blockchain and how that is disrupting our space. So let's get going. I'll come through from this side. So I'll start with Chris. As a payments clearinghouse, BankService is right in the middle of the open banking discussion. Do you mind enlightening the audience on what that is and how this is likely to disrupt the current financial service environment even beyond banking? That is open banking. Okay. So um, thank you for the question. I actually, I'm not sure I quite agree with your premise that, that, that we, as a clearinghouse, we sit in the middle of open banking because open banking is really about customer side rather than the back end of the bank. Clearing houses are very much about the back end of the bank. They're about connecting each bank with each other, with the other banks, if I can put it that way. But let's, um, might be best to, to try and describe open banking by way of a sort of a practical example. So let's say you're a customer, right? You and your bank is Arif, okay? Arif's your, your bank. Hello. You've got a car loan, you've got a home loan, you've got a current account, a card, etc. right? Now, Praveen here, 
he's a fintech, so he's got some clever um, programmer types, and he wants to sell you a new service for your phone. And let's just make this up, it's an app, and it's a financial management and budgeting app, so it allows you to keep track of your entire finances and all of your assets, and maybe make suggestions about uh, investments and things you can do to optimise your returns and stuff like that. So it's all very clever technical stuff, right? Now for him to be able to sell that to you, he really needs to know a lot about your financial status, right? It's, the app's not going to work unless it's got real-time, up-to-the-minute data. Where does he get that? Gets that from Arif, because Arif's your bank and he's got a lot of, perhaps not all of, but a lot of the actual data. And here's that sort of interesting bit. There might be two or three banks that Pravin needs to go to in order to get that data, right? So um, if he wants to do that, he's going to have to have a way, a structured, real-time or automated way of getting access to that data. That's open banking in a nutshell. That's the kind of core idea that people are trying to uh, get to. Now, uh, the interesting part about it is that it's often been primarily a regulatory discussion rather than a technological discussion. So I'm not a techie. I, I have to work with techies all day, so I try and avoid being technical. But, you know, so, so I don't want to talk about the underlying technology of that real-time access. Let's just take it as given that that's possible today. It wasn't possible that long ago, but it is fully possible today. The question is, does Arif want to give you that data? Because he might, or rather, Praveen that data. He might see Praveen as kind of a competitor and a risk and not want to give him that data. He might actually want to try and do the same thing. He might want to steal Praveen's idea and do the same thing himself as a bank, right? Um, so, open banking often becomes a regulatory conversation around a regulator going, you know what, I'm going to make the banks give up that data why? Because I want fintech in my community. I want competition and innovation and people come up with clever new ideas. And if they need access to financial data to get it, then they damn well better have it, right? That's essentially what both the UK and European regulators have done. And the Australian um, regulators are doing, and a number of other jurisdictions have said that they, they will or they're interested in. Hasn't happened here yet. But, uh, and we can ask Riff about that, but... Uh, yeah, yeah that, but, that actually um, leads to the next point. <laughs> but yeah, sure. So, so that's, the, that's the core idea. There's actually a lot more to it than that, but, but, but you can see straight away that there's a potential for a whole lot of market development if that gets properly in, um, implemented. Maybe I'll stop there and we can explore some of the yeah. other stuff. So I guess um, we'll hand it over to Riff to tell us uh, where exactly is uh, the South African regulator on open banking? Are there any plans to introduce this? Do you feel like where we're falling behind? Because there's a lot of activity across Europe and Australia, as he's mentioned, on this. There, there are a lot of fintechs that have been developed within the regulatory environment doing this. Where are we? Yeah, yeah. 2021, I'm told. <laughs> June, June 4th. Really? Okay. Perfect. <laughs> I'll just make a note. This is recorded. <laughs> I, I want to start off on a, a much lighter note, Mark. I've never seen such young bankers in my life. You know, except for Michael, you know, uh, his, his grade gave it away. Um, how, how many of you are under 30? Oh, wow. Everyone. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Now, now, payments crowd then, obviously. Uh, definitely no. not, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is an appropriate question for you because Chris set me up, right? 
How many of you would like the data that you hold in your bank? Okay, whatever that data is, whether it's savings data, investment data, credit data, insurance data, you'd like to give that away to a third party. Just put your hands up. <laughs> Only three people. Okay, just keep your just keep ah oh, could, could as well. All right, just keep just keep your hands up. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, twenty twenty one. Hold on a sec. Does it make a difference Jordan. who the third party is? Uh, I mean, if it's me, I get it, right? You don't know, like me or that. Absolutely. What you, if it's Mark Zuckerberg? You, I, I can I can tell you, you know, and and I'm so sure you got all your data, right? Exactly. So. Exactly. So I can tell you the number of calls I get every day, and I go, in the middle of a meeting, hi, it looks like an urgent call. The person says, hi, hello, hi, great to be talking to you. Um, we just want to inform you, uh, you know, you're lucky customer number 21, and um, you've got this product, and we're ready to give it to you. Um, can we take you through the, um, uh, the, 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 the service that we're going to offer? And, and then I say, like, how do you get my number? And, and, and like, how, how do you know it's me? How did you know it's Arif? Okay, just keep your hands up again, the four people. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay, just, just keep it up. One, two, three, four. Five people. Five people. Just keep it up. Okay. So, let, let, we'll, we'll go Kudzai last time. Just tell me, just tell us why you'd like that data to be housed with a third party. And let, let's assume we'll make it even more juicy. Let's say it's a trusted third party. Okay, why, why would you like that? Just be honest. But yeah. it's a, a different story if they have a contact number. I want to be able to have access to that, but on my own terms. Yeah. Access to the data on your own terms. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll support you for a second, right? I can remember I had to apply for a car loan not so long ago, and they asked me a whole lot of questions. How much do you pay for vegetables? How much do you pay for insurance? How much do you pay Basel? Like, goodness me, and I, t I can tell you when I filled in the form, I mean, I was trying to be as honest as I could. I couldn't really remember, okay? And I think about that, and I think, well, wow, what if that data was just available, and I could make it available in a secure manner to that particular entity, and they've got the data. There's no second guessing, right? So I would support that. Let's just get two more reactions, and I won't put you on the spot anymore. Feel free, right? Why, why do you want your data to be given away? I think your question, firstly, is a bit unfair in the sense that it, it doesn't give context. It? it doesn't give context. <laughs> so in the context that it makes my life easier and efficient and affordable, then I'm happy to share my data. So they must add value. Yeah. Must add value. Must add value. Where do you shop? I'll stop just now. I don't want to dominate the conversation. Where do you shop? <laughs> it depends. Uh, Where do you buy your groceries from? Groceries between... Woolies and pick and pay. Right, Woolies and pick and pay. So if you could, if you could negotiate with Woolies and pick and pay on an individual basis based on the type of things that you're buying from them, and they could customize a rebate for you, a kickback for you, you'd love that. That's value, right? Yes. Yeah, and that would be the value of open data. Absolutely. One more, one more reaction, and then I'll, I'll tell you where we are from a central banking perspective. Okay. Yeah, I can see that you set us up the way that question, so that was quite good. 
but yeah, I would say that if the if you can get value out of it and it is trusted that your data is secure, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing. I mean, like I think someone just said that it will open up a lot more innovation. The more data is available, but obviously, if it's if it's not secure, then I would feel uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let me latch onto that, and I want to support you as well. So, if it's secure, it'll give you comfort. And if it's not, you should have the right to remove the data, right? Um, and that's fundamental. That's fundamental part. So you can just listen to the reactions. You know, to Chris's point, this is there's a lot of regulatory thinking that's got to go into this. First question for us would be, what are we trying to solve for as regulators? Why don't we just leave it to the market? Let the market evolve. Let the market figure out whether it wants to share. Um, particular data, bank, banks, insurance companies, investment companies, and so on. What problem are we solving for? What market failure are we solving for? Secondly, if we do mandate something, what are the potential issues or risks that we could face, um, apart from the benefits? And those are very careful things that, are, that a central bank and consumer protector, pr protection regulator or market conduct regulator needs to think about. So where, where are we? Um, we certainly don't have a position on open banking. It is a hot topic. We're debating it a lot amongst a set of regulators. In fact, there's a workshop on the 3rd and 4th of September coming up between a set of regulators. And there's one entire work stream, um, an entire day cast aside, to talk about open banking. What we're going to do is observe very carefully what's going on in different markets. The two or three in particular that we'll keep close to is the UK, uh, the Netherlands, and of course, Australia, because we know Chris is from it. All right, and we'll, I think Australia has gone slightly differently to the, to the UK. Um, it's not just payments data that's been made available, but it's uh, all kinds of other data, credit and insurance and so on. And of course, we'll watch with care what the impact of that is. So we'd like to think of South Africa as being a fast follower rather than being at the cutting edge, and I think that's where we are. Whether we come up with a policy position or a mandated position by 2021, July 4th, June 4th, I don't know. I think we'll take it as, as we see uh, the market evolve. Okay. Fantastic. Um, now you know where, um, how to respond to that question when they say, why, why are you still behind? Why haven't you implemented this? You say, well, we're going to the conference. Which days did you say? 3rd <laughs> yeah. and 4th of September. We'll be discussing it on the 3rd and 4th of September. We'll, we'll, come, we'll come out with the position. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll, we'll have a position by, I guess, the 5th of September. Okay, so I think I'll, we'll, we'll chat a bit about the credit bureau before we go on to um, the role of blockchain. So, Prevent, tell us. Credit bureaus are likely to be more increasingly disrupted by the advent of open banking. Do you see this as a genuine threat? And how are you best preparing for this and getting more involved um, in this shift, even beyond South Africa? Because I know TransUnion is global. So I'm going to follow uh, Ari for a bit. Uh, there's a room full of bankers uh, across. Um, let's, let's take a show of hands. How many of you have gone through and accessed your credit report in the last year? Half the room. Now, that is a free-to-use access report that's available to every single one of you in the room. Now, I'm sure each one of you have a credit line. You each work with data, you each work with, with credits available to you. Now, the worrying stats when it comes back to whether it's a threat or not, and Arif touched on it, but there's a sense of trust or, or of, of use of data. Now, when it comes to credit information, generally the information we house as a bureau, that information is housed with or without your consent. That's shared between the banks, between yourselves, for the use of historical um, assessment of someone's profile. Now, again, I'm going to pick on someone. Let's, let's go, Jerome. How many, 
How many people in the country are credit active? population. To care to take a step? Panel, anyone? No idea. 25 million. So across each one of you retailers, uh, micro lenders and so forth, there's 25 million people that are credit active in the country. Out of the 25 million, you, the guys that put your hand up, only 600,000 people actually go and access and make sure whether their credit report is up to date. Of the 25 million that are credit active, 10 million are delinquents, the people that you try to stop lending to because of derogatory information. Now, that's a lot of people in the market that either does not have access to the formal lending market or have not been engaged through traditional means in, in accessing finance. Now, where we see open banking and why we don't see it potentially as a threat is that we've, over the past few years, we've gone down this route of assessing what other information is available in the market. So historically, credit in, in South Africa pre-2007, Arif mentioned how many vegetables you bought, what price you purchased. Post-2007, there was a lot of positive and negative credit information that's available in the market. And a lot of these models were based on a person's historical ability to repay back a loan. So that ability to repay back a loan set your PDs uh, that were available in the market and generally gave you ability to lend with confidence to a consumer. Now the issue comes in, what happens when you're trying to lend to someone that was not given access to, to that finance previously. So you then go into the, both the unbanked market and the previously disadvantaged market that was left out of the formal economy. So we've gone through steps and we've assessed non-financial information, non-credit historical uh, information that came across and we tested through, through the likes of FinTechs, people that aggregate non-financial information. And there's potentially 8 million consumers in the market that are good for credit risk. So if you do a like-for-like like PD matching on, on the information that's available, without the, without the access of historical credit lines on these individuals, there's 8 million additional consumers that's available to the market. Now these are individuals that the majority of you sitting in this room would not actually see because you're looking for that historical credit line. And that's where we see open banking coming up. It's giving us additional access to allow uh, better and greater financial inclusion into the market. It's almost augmenting the existing credit information that's available on the Bureau, and we're starting to go through the steps to understand what's available to, to the market, both for the benefit of clients uh, being the banks in the room and also the consumers in the market, which is an important uh, point. Sure. So it sounds um, like you see it as a competitive advantage, um, being an incumbent in the space. You're gonna use this to your benefit. Well, to the point, we, we started what I would consider the very early stages of it. Um, the reason why I asked the question earlier on um, the amount of people that actually go and access the credit reports, it's important to know that in South Africa there's, there's a trust issue when it comes to data. And I think Arif touched on it, six people put their hand up. So if open banking becomes evident, six people are going to consent in their information that's available. But that information is actually used back to benefit you. I think through the process, through regulator, third parties, uh, banks, institutions, bureaus like ourselves, it's very important to note that there must be a benefit both to a consumer and the client. Um, otherwise, we lose the plot in terms of use of, uh, of data that, that may get a bit messy. Thank you. Um, do any of the other panelists have an opinion on the role of the credit bureaus? Can we proceed? Well, not, not so much on the credit bureaus, but, but certainly about the real implications of open banking, I think. Uh, we're really only scratching the surface, so I, I wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about the broader strategic implications. Uh, you want to hold on to that, sure. and quickly we'll talk about blockchain, and then we'll talk about the strategic elements. Is that okay? Okay, sure. Okay, so 
Okay, how many people in this room think they understand blockchain? Hands. How many have <laughs> Okay, how many of, okay, of those who think they understand, how many of you have accounts? You've got the app, you're trading. Okay, all right, interesting. I, I got my first account two weeks ago, so no judgment. <laughs> um, so, so there's lots of people who are trading who don't understand blockchain. Yeah, so who yeah. also still don't have a clue. <laughs> okay, so we've got Yaliwe here. Like I said, um, she is one of, I guess, the, the leading ladies, one of the key individuals on the continent really leading the charge in terms of blockchain and responsible use of it. Do you mind just briefly, if that's even possible, explaining what blockchain is? Okay, um, I will try. I think I always use. Oh, I can't hear myself. <laughs> okay, I think this is much better. Okay, um, I, I usually use. You know, I, I was so happy when Chris said, "I'm not a taking." I mean, I always use that excuse to explain blockchain in the way that I understand it. So, um, blockchain is really, it, and it's a good thing I'm speaking to bankers because I don't have to explain things like ledgers, right? So, uh, a blockchain is an incorruptible digital ledger of transactions. And this ledger doesn't, it, it's programmed in such a way that it doesn't only allow, you know, financial transactions to be recorded on it, but virtually everything of value. So it could be uh, information, for example. So that's how it is programmed. And why is it called a blockchain? It's because each, let's say, um, each transaction that has been validated on a network is called a block, right? So the next transaction that comes, the next transaction contains what I normally say a signature, or the DNA of the previous transaction. So it becomes a chain of transactions, and hence the blockchain. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I normally explain it in such a way. And why is it incorruptible? It's the same thing I said, it contains the DNA of the previous transaction. So if you want to change, let's say you, um, you, you, you made a transaction at number 10, and there's a thousand transactions, and you want to go and tamper with that transaction, you have to go through those transactions and start changing the DNA of those transactions in order to get to that. Who has the time for that? So basically, that's what it's called, the blockchain. Okay, thank you. And I'm glad that you mentioned it's not just financial. I think um, uh, one of the greatest learnings, I guess, I've had the past years is um, applicability in healthcare and agricultural processes. Um, so yeah, I think it's something that we need to skill ourselves up on. Um, it is, I guess, energy intensive. And I mean, a lot, there are a lot of critics but it's, it's, it's here, I can't say it's coming, it's here and it's one area that I feel that um, actuaries need to at least be knowledgeable about. So I'm not saying you all need to open accounts, it still is <laughs> risky business, but I think it's something worth spending an hour or so just going through the many, many videos on YouTube and also the material that Yaliwe has put together which we will be circulating to all the attendees. So now that we've got a rough idea of what blockchain is, thank you for that, there's a lot of buzz around how blockchain will boost the use of open banking. Do you see genuine intersection between the two? And if so, how will they leverage one another? Okay, um, what I normally uh, come across is, firstly, blockchain is trustless. And uh, what I mean by trustless is I don't have to know you in order for me to transact with you. Why? Because all the transactions are recorded in real time, right? And if I look at open banking, well, I'm not so um, knowledgeable on that, but from the little knowledge that I've acquired so far when Chris was speaking is that it allows uh, you know, third parties and other people to have access to information. And why don't people share information or banks share information? It's because of trust. So blockchain brings in a layer of trust. So if everything is built on the blockchain, 
you don't have to worry about somebody stealing or tampering with your information. So I believe that could be the kind of interoperability between the two. Okay. So I think that um, then leads us back to the, I guess, more strategic elements um, and including, I guess, the intersection between, I guess, open banking and other technologies such as blockchain. Where do you see this going, any other panelists? I guess we'll start with Chris. Can I, can I have a go? Yeah. So, so there's many, many ways we could go with this and Arif and I have talked about this kind of stuff a lot <laughs> at different times. But, but let me just throw in a couple of ideas which I think are interesting about sort of long-term evolution of the market. W what is common, I think, the relationship between open banking and and blockchain-based financial applications is very, very hard to predict right now. There's, there's just far too much we don't know about where both of them are going to go. However, you can say one thing about both of them, which is that what they do is they take a function, a core activity, which used to be regarded by particular organisations like banks as being one of their central functions, one of their key activities, and externalises it to the company, takes it outside the company, right? Um, so uh, let, me, let me just talk about that in the open banking context. What the open banking technologies allow is that the things which have always been bundled together in a bank, the core functions, the, the four things that banks do for their customers are, are they safe keep assets, they, they store value, they um, provide investments, they provide credit, and they provide transactions. So in, in very general terms, everything banks do fall into one of those four big buckets. And one reason why banks are such powerful organisations is, until very recently, it's been impossible or very, very hard to do any one of those things without doing the other three. Right? It's a bundling effect. You need all four to get the full benefit and, and, and the, the bang, if you like, of a, of a banking activity. What these technologies allow is for you to pick and choose, to take core functions away and say, I'm going to be a transactor, but I'm not going to store your assets for you. I'm not going to provide credit. I'm just going to do the transaction part really quickly. Does anybody? Can anybody think of an example of a company that did that a number of years ago? I think there should be some representatives in this room who do um, clearing. Well, PayPal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. PayPal is essentially a transacting company. Yet, yes, actually, you can actually put assets into it if you want to, but you don't have to. It can just transact for you, and it's actually an old school version of this. It's it's pre some of the newer technologies. Um, if, if you start thinking about the implications of that more broadly, then the word disruptive becomes really appropriate because it's not so much that, that banking is under threat, it is that the nature of banking is changing quite fast. And they're going to be really interesting and challenging decisions for banks to make about which of many new pathways they want to pursue. And probably the only thing they can do wrong is not to pursue any, it's just to stay kind of the way they are because there are just so many different ways of grappling with this new world. Do you want to emphasise one of those functions over another? Do you want to rather focus on a particular customer group and say to that customer group, I'm going to be your everything? If you can get away with that, that can be really good business. And there are companies that do that very, very successfully, right? Um, do you want to, want to be a platform? In, in other words, you give up trying to provide products to your customers. And what you do is you provide the access by which people can access many different types of products. And again, you can think of examples of companies, I'm sure, like that Facebook springs to mind. WeChat, classic example, right? So um, these technologies are really going to shake up very much what we think of in the whole idea of what a bank is. Okay. Can I latch on to that? So I couldn't help wondering as I listened to Michael and listening to you now, Lisa, you know, as you describe um, this capability of 
having a decentralized ledger. I asked myself, you know, when I looked at that stuff and the maturity transformations, whatever they were, liquidity or credit and, and, and so on, what happens when those assets are no longer sitting on a single balance sheet and it's sitting in the network? And who would do that heart that he had in the middle? I forget the department balance sheet something. <laughs> BSM. B BSM, right, balance sheet management. Who would do that? Just reflect on that as actuaries for a second. Who would do that and what would that mean? Marcus pointing at you. Oh, me. <laughs> Why me? Him. <laughs> the Reserve Bank would do it. So, you know, I think, I think there's a set of technologies, uh, to Chris's point, that are emerging that are going to challenge the fundamental business models of how particular services are run. And very quickly, if I may, in two minutes. So, for the central bank, We've been thinking about this, of course, for a number of years now. Um, we just broadly kind of call it fintech. And in essence, what we mean is disruptive business models in financial services, and how would a central bank think about this? I, I just want to latch on to Chris's example of doing, almost taking it out of your organization and leaving it, to, I'll just say, to the network, right, as an example. So not too many people know this. The payments people know it pretty well. If you think of all transactions in South Africa every single day, the r rough total value of it would be about 350 billion rand. That's my groceries, the salaries that get paid. Chris sends some money to um, Mark over the internet, debit orders, card transactions, etc. Okay, what percentage of that of those transa transactions do you think make up retail? I'm taking cash out of it for now. Make up retail the value of it. What percentage? Just take a guess. All I, retail I know, transactions. so I'm not going to answer yeah. that. <laughs> you guys have a okay. guess. Take a guess. All the transactions, salaries, checks, debit orders, value. Not volumes, it's high, but value-wise. Yeah, volume. Okay. Volume, yeah, right? Value-wise. Less than 10%, right? Less than 10%. Few people know that. Then you ask, oh goodness, what's the other transactions? The 92%. It's large asset movements. Yeah. It's high-value payments that typically happen between banks for things that happen in the bond market, security market, trading markets, and so on. 92% of that value happens in real time between banks. 92% of the value. Can I, can I just add on to Please that go a for little it, bit, yeah. which is that on top of that, there's an entire informal economy in South Africa. Something like 40% of the transactional volumes are not registered in our banking system. They're actually happening in cash around uh, the banking system. So, and, and that would be an, an even tinier proportion of the total value. So you've got this massive imbalance between where all the activity is and where all the value is. And I guess, so, yeah, outside of South yeah. Africa, that 40% could easily be 80 to 90%. Well, absolutely. So we, we run a card switch in the DRC, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where um, the bank account, the banking rate's about 10%, as opposed to, what is it, um, 75, I think, here, yeah. So crazily, if you think of that 92% of value that passes between banks, um, and Mark hinted, said, ah, it must be the central bank that does, does something. That value actually passes through a system called SAMOS. All right? It's our real-time gross settlement system. Without that system, you cannot process these transactions. That's a fact. <laughs> right? Every transaction over 5 million bucks, these 92% of the value of transactions has to go through the system. So what we try to do is do it on a blockchain. Take the South African Reserve Bank out of it and put it on a blockchain. 
We did it a, a year ago, if, I, if memory serves me correctly now. Oh yes, there was right? a pilot, yeah, That's you could, if you could touch right? on that. Yeah, so it was called Project Coca, and what we wanted to see was whether you could tokenize the RAND. So Chris will tell you that when the transactions are flowing through Bankserve, okay, it's information about value, it's not value, right? What we tried to do was, leveraging things like Bitcoin and Ether and so on, we wanted to actually see whether we could tokenize the RAND and then give it to the banks and say, there, you go and participate on your own. 92% of that value you can transact on your own. Do you think they were able to do it on a blockchain? Equivalent to the system that we have today in terms of scale, time, and let's just say trust, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Yay or nay? Were they able to do it on a blockchain? Yeah, they were able to do it. They were able to do it. Okay, we normally process, it doesn't sound like a lot of transactions, the value is large, 350 billion, but we did 70,000 transactions, we normally have to process it in about an hour and a half, two hours, and we're able to do that on a blockchain. The question then is, why would we not move to a blockchain? Yeah, so I, I I'm going to leave Chris to answer that. Okay, because <laughs> so he knows I, I'm a beer, right? I know I'm, the I'm pilot a blockchain was successful. Beer, so. That's a reverse setup. I know the pilot was successful, but I know that the plan isn't to implement it in full. E exactly. So let's, let's hear you. about that. <laughs> and I'd like also Yaliwe to comment on yeah. what she sees as some of the challenges in implementing it at such a scale. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the question I asked her if after, actually it wasn't you, it was one of, your, one of the team who did it, but the question I asked them afterwards was, great, you can do it. Was it better? Like in what way was it better than a traditional network and database? And I never got a good answer to that question. So, you know, I think, I think the, the lesson for me, and it's not that I'm anti-blockchain technology, it is that I think so often the technology overtakes the business need here. Um, we, we have a lot of people who are in love with a very, very cool technology, but aren't really thinking clinically about how it's gonna do something that can't be done otherwise, or can do it much better than the way it can be done today. And until we get that, we're not gonna get real progress, actually. In Yaliwe, what do you think are some of the challenges in the implementation of blockchain, even where it's clear that there could be value added, um, I guess, off of Chris's? Um, okay, um, what I feel is that the blockchain is still in its infancy, and you know, there's a lot of people are still experimenting with better ways and, you know, faster transactions and how they can do things better on the blockchain. So it's the infancy stage. So once we reach a stage of maturity, I think a lot of organizations will be able to adopt it. So everybody's still experimenting with the technology. And I guess in this case, I mean, I understand at the reserve bank level, um, you know, for the large banks in terms of clearing their payments, it might be premature. But can you think about spaces within the bank, within banks, within fintechs, where people could start using blockchain and experimenting with it in, I guess, more tangible ways? Because, I mean, you don't wake up and you're mature. You, you go through a process, you experiment, so we've, we've experimented at, at, a, at a large scale, but I don't see any mu as much of it in South Africa um, at a much smaller scale. So do you have any spaces you can think of where this might be real? Well, there is a classic, which is, yeah, sorry, do you want to? Go, go. Which is the, the foreign exchange and um, trade finance space. And actually gives you a good clue to where the opportunities might be if you think about the attributes for why that's a good, that, that's got real promise and why a lot of people are experimenting in that area. This is an area where there are a lot of different participants in each transaction. So there's a lot of complexity in the transaction. Different people, you know, bonded warehouses, banks, shipping companies, um, exporters, importers, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of complex parties. They all want um, a subset of a complex pool of information for, that needs to 
follow each transaction around, if you like. Right? It needs to be immutable because you don't want anybody tampering with the, um, you know, the elements of that pool, and it gets added to continuously by new parties as they join the chain, and then other parties leave the chain. So, uh, and so, if you think about all those attributes, those are the things that actually potentially a blockchain can do better than a classic de database and network, um, uh, because of the way the technology is constructed. But that's, for my money, the kind of analysis we should be going through. We should be saying, okay, what is it about this particular business problem I have, or this this thing, which means traditional networks and databases aren't doing a good job, and blockchain could do a better job. And trade finance is one of them that people think has got a genuine prospect. I, I won't share the detail of it. I think it would be inappropriate. I think there are a number of banks um, that have been toying with blockchain, and some have successfully deployed um, very recently across their subsidiaries in, in Africa. Um, I wish I could share the detail of it, but I think it would be inappropriate. But it's a signal that you know, for very specific use cases, you know, the, the distributed ledgers would make a lot of sense. Um, so I think the, the important point that comes across is the management of the data that goes through. Um, there's, been, there's been a lot of cases, and I think from, from our perspective, you, you mentioned we've got interactions globally. Uh, the more mature interactions of, of data use within these types of environments has been our US and UK markets. You mentioned you spent some time in the UK. Uh, the UK has a very much mature, evolved uh, open banking network. Um, the data flows is very important in the sense that it relies on the trust of the consumer giving consent to utilize that information. But where the augmentation of the data becomes important is how consumers envisage that benefit coming back. We're very much in a, in a society in SA where we expect something back for any part of asset that we inherently give up. I, I keep on to go back. It was quite shocking, the, the example that Arif asked you guys. Who, who would give consent? into an open banking platform. Only six of you actually did it. Um, that, is, that is the basis of premise that open banking needs to be successful in the market. We all expect something back, but we very rarely willing to give something in return. Um, each one of you would have worked with various rewards programs that your banks would have adopted across, and it's very much in-house. Imagine if those reward programs were based on a customer's actual behavior across the market rather than isolated towards, towards your institution. And I think that's where the compromise needs to come, both from a personal level and without getting too emotional on, on, on a personal attribute, is the South African consumer has to let go of that trust. And that trust comes in how secure can the system be? How secure is the data management processes? How is the consent managed? you'll see a lot more than six of you would actually put your hand up uh, to actually let go of that information because it is actually back to the benefit of yourself. Well, well actually, you already are. So can I try a little counterfactual? Sorry. So, so you know how when you're download a new app, and it doesn't matter what it's for, it could be an airline or anything, right? Uh, and you've got to sign in for the first time and it says use Facebook to sign in, question mark. You know that? How, or use Google, either one, right? How many people do that when it says that? Come on, <laughs> seriously, right? Well, that's exactly what you're doing, right? You're taking data, you're externalizing data from, from one place that is your data, and you're consenting to its use by a third party who then accesses it directly from the original source. That's all open banking is, right? Okay, you're just adding the spice of value, you know, actual monetary value on top of it. But, but at the core, the reason why it's inevitable in my mind that this will become a very widespread phenomenon 
is that we're doing it, and, and more particularly the kids growing up today who've had it from, from birth, regard the world, this is the way the world works. It's not a novel idea, right? So um, to that point, as, as we were discussing earlier, I think privacy is an illusion nowadays. Yeah. I, it, it, there are cameras everywhere, everywhere, and uh, your information is out there. Google could open a bank tomorrow very easily, and I think there's an illusion of, of control of the information. Interesting leap is not doing, sorry, Facebook's not doing a bank, it's doing a clearinghouse. Yeah, it's, yeah. Doing, it's probably, it'll, it'll, yeah. It's probably yeah, the biggest disruptor in, the, in yeah. the crypto and blockchain space. And I think, to your point around the culture, um, and perception of, of value. And I'd like to like uh, to ask Yaliwe because she's had a bit of exposure across the continent as well on the use of this technology. I think even outside of the payment space, do you think culture, mindset, um, the level of education we have on these issues is probably what the barrier is? And I guess also then if you can tell us sort of what needs to be done on that level as well to, to get people to understand what the power of this is. Because again, we might just be dealing with cultural issues that aren't really fundamentally based on real values. Yeah, um, I think education is a key factor because uh, they say people are often afraid of what they don't understand. And if you make people understand the possibilities of how those technologies could improve their life outside the financial sector, you know, there's a lot of issues. I wrote an article a long time ago, and it's something quite personal because uh, it was a land issue that we had to deal with because my grandfather was trying to be generous, and this person uh, was given a piece of land, and when my grandfather passed away, he had built a house and everything, and my grandmother needed to sell that piece of land in order to secure the house we're living in. But it was a game of knives and axes, and we had to go to court and spend money that she didn't have in order for us to to actually uh, prove that that was her piece of land. So if this piece of land was recorded on a technology like the blockchain, we wouldn't have to go through all those things. So it, there's need for education, and that's why as the United Africa Blockchain Association, we're trying to run, we're running a program called Reaching and Teaching One Million People on Blockchain in Africa. So it's not only about uh, the financial aspect of it. And as the saying goes, you know, these technologies will exist, and they will continue to get better, but whose life does it change in the long run. So basically, it's, I think education is a key factor. And from the Reserve Bank perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll use COCA as the example. When we started last year, January 2018, if you asked us what was a smart contract was, what an Istanbul-Byzantine fault tolerance was, or a penitent commitment, we'd look at you almost similarly as I was looking at some of the slides this morning, going, yep, that's banking. Right? We didn't really know. So hum humility is a, is a crucial part, I think, in the learning journey. Now, having put a group of people, including many of the banks, in a room for a week, you know, Chris will tell you, to build payment systems takes a long time. To build an RTGS takes you two, two to three years. You want to make the sure... The tech is easy. It's the people the that it's are the Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they managed to build the stuff in six weeks. Yeah. Six weeks. Okay, so l learning... I think in a community, as long as you're humble and as long as you're willing to, to share and, um, you know, and, and test with each other, that happens. Let, let me latch on to that. I think, so I often, people ask me in the bank, you know, the governors say, so what's COCA about? And I say, ah, COCA's really about, take it away from the technology, it's really about two capabilities. It's an absorptive capability, the ability to learn, to absorb, to learn, and it's an adaptive capability, the ability to change. We've been doing things as central bankers the same way for many, many, many years. And I think this ability to move with speed and learn with speed is crucial. 
So I'm going to latch on very quickly and describe that one of the things we've been talking about for a long time, probably the last one year, well, one and a half years, is an innovation hub in, in South Africa. And we're busy designing that right now amongst a set of regulators. The hub would contain three capabilities. The first one is a regulatory guidance unit. So as innovators, including banks, any incumbents or fintech firms, you could come to the regulators, a collective of them, NCR, Fisca, Saab, National Treasury, SARS, <laughs> and you could say to pick, and you could say to them, this is what I'm thinking about doing, it's a one-stop shop, please give me some guidance. We keep arguing that regulation shouldn't be opaque and it should not be a barrier to entry. You should be able to question and say, I'm, I'm about to do this activity, what do I need to comply with? And you should get an answer to that. Okay, so the first structure would be a regulatory guidance unit under the hub. The second one would be what we typically call a sandbox. You see that in many other jurisdictions. So the sandbox would be a space where if we cannot understand what the innovation is doing and it doesn't fit neatly with the regulatory framework, we could allow innovators to continue in the live environment with a restricted number of customers um, to continue the innovation while the regulation is being, uh, is being assessed. And then the third one, is, is, is what we did uh, COCA under, it's called an accelerator. It's where you don't be afraid of making mistakes and failing. You toy with things like AI, blockchain, open banking, and so on. So it's not the live environment, but it's a proof of concept space. Our governor likes to call it sandpit, a place where you go and play. Um, and, uh, and, and those are the structures that we will put in place. Fantastic, that's really exciting. And I think what I really like um, from what I'm hearing is the fact that um, there's education happening for the large players, so the big banks, and there's a lot of work you're doing on the ground for individuals, people who either want to innovate or people who are going to be using this technology. So it, it looks like we're doing the effort from the ground up and from the top down. Um, and I'd like to know, is the innovation hub, um, aside from the accelerator, is it, is it live? Is it something people can go to today with a fintech idea? Because we've got some entrepreneurs in the room as well. No, no, we, we're, so we're doing it informally. If people approach us, depending on the, on the use case, we would then meet with the innovators. Um, uh, we're, we're about four months away um, for a collective design between the respective regulators, four months. That's really exciting. Um, so I think while we're on that point, um, before we open up to questions from the floor, um, like I said, there are some entrepreneurs in the room, some people were thinking of fintech ideas, some people who are entrepreneurs as well in, within their banks. What advice do you have, all the panelists, um, for people who are, who are thinking of moving into the space, we're thinking of using banking data, we're thinking of using the sand pit, we're thinking of using blockchain technology. What sage advice, cautionary points, um, <coughs> some wisdom that you can drop before, before we go into questions? <laughs> No, sorry. I, I, well, so uh, let me just get, make a couple of um, observations about different jurisdictions. So South Africa has quite a different model for fintech development at the moment from, say, Australia uh, or the UK. Um, there is quite a lot of investment going into, fin in, into fintech here, but it's in a much more corporate structured sort of a way. So basically the guys who seem to be prospering are the ones who can sell a good story to Standard Bank or FNB or, or you know, a, a big provider and they will fund them on spec. You know, they've got a certain amount of R&D budget. And then they get the opportunity to do some cool stuff and they get some access to the bank's resources as well. And so that can work really well. It does, however, rather leave the decision of what things to explore you know, in the hands of the equity investment guys at the banks, or at least at the large organisations, telcos maybe as well, right? 
Um, it's evolved a bit more in Australia because you, you've got some genuine venture capital type setups where you can get some money to do stuff. There are uh, accelerator um, hubs where um, they will get you know 40 young entrepreneurs into a room for a week and they'll go, okay, you know, you've all got a desk and a computer, build something, pitch it to us, there's four guys sitting out the front who are prepared to put up X amount of money if they like the idea, you know, that kind of thing. It's very high pressure, lots of fail rate, but actually you get some really good ideas out of that and then it goes somewhere. And then the UK is probably even more evolved beyond that where uh, as well as that venture capital stuff, you've got some very systematic farming of ideas going on. So um, there's a lot of different ways of doing it, but I think um, one of the things as an observation about South Africa is it would be good if we could find a way of opening up that access to funding and access to resources a little bit more, yeah. And I guess I just quickly on that point, I think the, the launch of SASME, the South African SME fund um, that was yep. a spin-off from the CEO project, yep. we'll probably see a lot more funding coming through the P firms yep. and VCs through yep. them. Um, so I guess they've decided to be sort of the market maker in that space and hopefully yep. yeah, we'll reach the levels of Australia and the UK and make funding more easily available. Yeah, from, from my side, um, the one piece of advice I can give is sometimes we concentrate too much on the tech. Um, we, we, we focus on what best tech, what best platform we can utilize, what next best model we can, we can implement. And along the journey, you forget about the consumer. Um, the consumer gets missed out of the experience and the success of every venture, every fintech, um, every aggregator, every bank product that, that you guys launched is essentially at the hands of the consumer, how the consumer actually envisages, uh, how the consumer experiences it. Keep that in mind. Uh, bear in mind that the consumer, the, the average South African citizen that's sitting there on, 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 the, on the street today, doesn't actually care what platform or tech you actually utilize. They want an experience, and the experience wins the game. I keep using the example, going back, a lot of people go, go through the Kodak moments and, and failures that they've gone through. Uh, Kodak went, and at the time Facebook was launched, Kodak was trying to develop a 100 megapixel camera that could have gone underwater, that the consumer could have used, they, made, they tried to make it commercially available, available to the market. At the time, the average digital smartphone was running on a 1.3 megapixel camera. Those little cameras, if you put it up on, onto, onto a screen this size, you would literally see the pixelation on it. But the difference between the two is that you could upload that picture onto Facebook, you could not upload the 100 megapixel picture that Kodak was taking. Now, what won the day? That was amazing tech that Kodak actually envisaged for the market and what wanted to actually launch out. It was phenomenal. It was years ahead from what any smartphone manufacturer was actually implementing at the time. What won the day was the experience of being able to take that photo, upload it onto environments, and getting one of your friends to say like, as simple as that. And that's what's accelerated the smartphone area through Facebook away from Kodak. And a lot of the time we spend a lot of a lot of effort trying to maximize, get the best tech, we forget about, about the consumer experience. Consumers do not care what platform uh, that you utilize, they want a better experience. And that's probably the best advice that, that we can give out. Um, back, back to the examples uh, of our US and UK markets, we've successfully implemented those sandboxes. We call it our test labs. It's live simulated data that uh, fintechs, banks, um, analysts, uh, and so forth can spend. Uh, they spend almost a week, uh, they, bring, they bring through test models, test products that they can actually simulate through live transactional data that's available through the Bureau. Um, we're launching a local version towards the end of the year whereby you can come in and you can literally deploy models and test the efficacy of, it, uh, of its uh, value and worth, or from a PD perspective, take up, etc. 
Um, those test uh, platforms are available. Don't be afraid to utilize them. Don't be limited by the data or the information that's housed within within your organization. Okay, so um, the people who are interested, who do they contact? Where, where do they get access to this? Um, okay, so majority of you guys are from banks. Um, you will have you'll have your account managers obviously from TransUnion perspective. Um, otherwise, I'm happy to leave uh, details across, and you guys can contact me, and I'll get you in touch with the correct people. Okay, so even um, startups, so people who just have ideas, they can get in touch with you. Yep, and okay. I'll point you down the right direction. Fantastic, thank you. Yeah, okay. Um, so my closing note would be that uh, you know there's no experts in this field at the moment, and um, I believe this is a time to get your hands dirty and. You could experiment, you could you know, explore, you could just do anything because the information is still out there in the open and this is the time to position yourself to be a key stakeholder in the digital revolution. Because um, I look at, well, I was just appointed to be a dev scholar among 50 people globally and if I look at my position right now, I'm competing among techies, developers, but as we go, I mean, I'm on the leaderboard. It's not because I know too much about tech but I positioned myself to be a leader in this revolution. So I think this is the right time for you to actually take part. Fantastic. Um, you did mention that you have a conference coming up in Cape Town, um, where you, I guess you'll be discussing, I guess, the range of blockchain across all industries. That's, can you just um, mention the dates? Okay, no, um, that is not really my conference. I was supposed to be speaking at the conference, but we've got, um, an event coming up on the 2nd of August, so we're trying to bring more women to the table. So it's the United Africa Women in Blockchain and AI launch. So it's just at 150 Rivonia Road, and it's, it's an open event. All you need to do is to RSVP with Anita. I think um, Kutai will share the details later. Fantastic, thank you. Nyeri? Um, I want to latch on to what Chris was uh, describing in other jurisdictions, and this is not public uh, yet, but I'm going to be bold and go out on a limb. So my advice is, is going to be join the Hackcelerator. It's about to come. It's a partnership between the South African Reserve Bank and the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Um, the culmination of the event would be in November. Um, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs can put forth their ideas. It's a, it's a competitive process. And you can win, I think, something like 250,000 US dollars if you make it to the finals. Um, the process here would be triggered probably in the next uh, three weeks or so, and there would be four categories. It would be insurtech, um, regtech and subtech, financial inclusion, and one that is a catch-all, general banking. Um, the beauty of it is we'd reach out, for example, to Baza and some of the other banks, etc., and we would craft problem statements. So it isn't, oh, wow, let me come up with an idea. There would be a set of probably between 50 to 80 problem statements along these four, these four categories that are relevant to the Southern African domain. And we would then turn to the innovators and say, please come demonstrate to us what you, what you could provide as solutions to these respective problems. It's a great way to get the minds going, to get the focus going, and to get some funding as well. So my advice is join the accelerator. Okay, there are about 45,000 people who pitch in that FinTech Festival at the end of the year. It's very competitive. 20 of the firms would make it through. Two would be from Africa in this, um, in this regional track. Okay. 
Thank you very much. So yeah, some practical advice and uh, places to go if you want to get your hands dirty. So maybe let's take a few questions from the audience. I know we're running behind time, so maybe if we can take 10 minutes and then we'll have a brief um, coffee break. Let's start there, and then we'll go to the center. Um, hello, hello, everyone. My question is to Pravin. Um, because I know TransUnion is going around uh, sort of selling data or providing data to, let's say, financial institutions. Uh, because as a bank, we do have our transactional data, but there's stuff that we do not see that's out there, right? What are the implications? Because I, I think when you, uh, when you started, you said, you mentioned that you hold data whether a customer gave you consent or not. So what is the implication of us as a bank using that data to augment some of, some of the stuff that we're thinking about here? Uh, maybe, just if you can keep the mic, uh, maybe some examples of, of what you're thinking through. So remember, when I go through the iterations of a bureau holds information with or without the customer's consent, the Bureau is aggregating information across the industry from banks, retailers, insurers, telcos, and so forth. That information is accessed by another bank or another credit provider at point of application on consent of the customer. So consent is always used to access the data, but we house it regardless through the data hub that's, that's provided across uh, the, the, the regulated uh, bodies across the industry, banks, telcos, etc. The implications of a bank utilizing outside information it's currently being done today. So if you're trying to build expansion expansion strategies, so moving out of uh, segments or, or niche personas that you're currently diving with, it's available. It's available must, and that's the platforms that I mentioned that you would actually want to go through the testing cycles to, to analyze. So if you're sitting in a bank or in a smaller player and you have X amount of the market, but it's only representative of the market you've historically dealt with, the potential exists for you to actually test and learn new methodologies or expansion strategies on masked information without the consent of consumers. It's when the consumer actually wants to interact or you want to solicit a product or service that you require that consent. If that answers your question? Yeah, the, the mask part, yeah. yeah. All right, we had some questions in the second column. Uh, thanks very much. Um, just more a bit of a comment uh, on the open, ba open banking and the, the first question that was asked to the audience. And uh, Paul next to me mentioned the uh, 22-7, which I'm sure a lot of people are aware of. And I didn't put up my hand that I would consent to my data being shared, but I was very happy to sign up for that and let them have access to my data. And I think the nuance, but which maybe everyone would agree with, or, okay, maybe that's, that's too strong, but a lot of people would agree with is that when it's permission-based, then, then no one has a problem with it. You know, if someone can access my data when I give them permission, well, I've given them permission, and otherwise they can't access it. And so if the open banking could be on such a, a, a scenario, then it would be great. And I mean, conversely, I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that we mentioned that the, the credit bureaus have access to my data. What happens if there's a data breach there? You know, I haven't given permission, and there could be. So, if to level the playing field with everyone, say you can access the data, but as long as you got permission up front. I think we had another question, the second column, then we'll take Mark's question. Uh, thank you. Uh, my question is just to the panel in general. Um, so, in my limited understanding, 
if you can essentially digitize um, ownership to an asset, then the capability of blockchain, where it's um, call it public, um, distributed, um, really provides a lot of uh, efficiency from both a cost, timing, and even an access perspective. So from just a society perspective, would it not make sense for not just South Africa, but essentially every country to really prioritize or at least experiment with um, an attempt to get deeds office onto blockchain? Because then you really open up a space where effectively smart contracts can start interacting, um, access and, and then ownership is just a lot easier to verify and change. Would like to take that? Yeah. Yeah, you go for it. Um, so I think that would work, but what I believe is that, you know, there's, there's a lot of systems in different countries and different jurisdictions. So I think there has to be some kind of agreement if they have to put everything on the blockchain. And if you look at um, Africa in general, right, um, there's a lot of uh, countries out there that still don't understand a lot of, I mean, South Africa is doing better. Um, Kenya is doing better. I mean, I think the president, the last time I was speaking at Transform Africa, just put up a digital framework that other countries could look into. And my, um, well, I'd say my uh, suggestion was that maybe if we could look into certain common uh, areas and common problems that affect African countries or affect the world, and we could start from there. So it would be a good thing, but we've got a long way to go. It, it's, it's unfortunately a lot more complicated than that, uh, is, the, is the short answer. Um, so take the land registry example, just as one of many. Um, I come from a country where they effectively digitised land in 1885, like way before the computing era, right? Because they created a single state-based, admittedly not national, register of land where every plot was recorded and transfer was as simple as signing a piece of paper and handing it to the guys who kept the register, right? So, so, you know, let's be careful about what the technology is really doing for you and what actual organisation, good old-fashioned, yeah, get, get yourself sorted out, <laughs> is going to do for you, right? And so um, it's not yet clear to me that having an external public immutable register for registered land is fundamentally better than just having a well-constructed register for land, right? Um, which is the way most other countries do it. South Africa doesn't. I don't know why. You're still doing what, what we call in Australia old system title, right? And, and uh, you know, there, there's just a structural challenge about solving some of those problems, which has got nothing to do with the underlying technology. So that's, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I would say is when, when you do a big fundamental underlying technology change, it is a human, it's human nature to emphasize the benefits and, uh, and um, ignore or not discover until much later the detriments. There's always pros and cons, right? So for example, I haven't, you know, so that there are definitely reconciliation benefits to using a, a blockchain-based external immutable register, right? There are some quid pro quos that com companies will need to think really carefully about. You give up control of the format and the, the uh, distribution of your data, right? Not everybody wants to do that, right? Not every consumer wants to do that, not every business wants to do that. It's not just a matter of who can see it, it's that you no longer get to 
decide what format it's going to be stored in because that's now on an external public register, right? And the only way that's going to change is if there, if there is a governance framework over the top of the blockchain. And that, by the way, is diabolically difficult. Lots of blockchains have really bad governance frameworks, right, that decide whether the data is going to change in what form and how that's going to happen, right? So you don't solve all problems by um, changing from one technology to another. What you do is you solve the problems you know about, but you may well be creating new problems that you've got to manage for. That, that's not a reason not to do it. You've just got to be clear-eyed when you're doing it, that's all. Super. Um, Mark? Thank you. Just a, a short observation. I mean, the, the six people in the room who indicated that they were prepared to share their data uh, qualified it, and the condition was that it had to add value. And that's going to be a very difficult thing to moderate. Um, I think that, um, you know, in some of the questions that we've been asking around the, the entire value proposition, you start talking about data ethics, and you start reaching that questionable point about whether the value added actually exists in certain applications. I have no doubt that there's a solution waiting to be resolved through blockchain. What I would ask is that instead of us talking about open banking, we change this to open data. Because it creates a fundamental uh, focus on the banking sector as being the data hub of the world. It's not. Data is data. And the second observation is that if you are going to be going around doing fintech, and I've experienced this firsthand, please try and solve a problem first before you cash the check. All right? And it sounds a bit ridiculous, but I've been in conversations where people want to solve problems, but they want to retain the IP and sell it to you. They want to, they see themselves as millionaires. You come to the banking industry and you say, it's only going to cost 10 million, 30, 30 million, only. Um, you're not thinking about what you're trying to solve for. So my advice is, if you want to get into the game of fintech, solve for a real-world problem. If there's money to be made, you will be the beneficiary thereof because you're the innovator. Thank you for that. Any other questions in the room? Right at the back there. <laughs> Sorry, I think the question is more to, to your leeway. Um, is it possible, has it happened that block, the blockchain or a blockchain, I'm not sure how to reference it, has been hacked? And is it possible to alter that historic information at all? Uh, yes, remember what I said in the first place. It is possible, but it is time consuming, right? So it depends. Let's say you need to data from maybe a transaction number 10 out of 20,000 transactions. You have to start changing the DNA of the previous transactions in order for you to get to that one. So it's possible, but time consuming. So who has the time? <laughs> There's another question at the back. Um, so something I don't understand about blockchain is if each transaction has the DNA of all the previous transactions and it can be traced back, why is it used on the black market? So is it not easy then to go and see who bought drugs with that money? Pardon, just repeat the question. So, so if each transaction has got the DNA of all the previous transactions, you can essentially trace that money or not? Um, transactions on the blockchain 
are transparent. But remember, if you made a transaction as, let's say I made a transaction as Yellowin, I'm not identified as Yellowin. I'm identified by a certain number. And uh, it's a code, right? So it uh, consists of numbers and letters, right? And it's called a hash. So that is the actual signature that, so that I didn't want to use technical terms at first. So the, each block contains the hash of the previous block. So if my code was A, B, what, 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 somewhere in there, the next block is going to contain some of those uh, numbers and letters. So they have to be changed backwards in order for, 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 that, for you to alter the transaction. So you have to start changing. So you won't be identified as the person, you'll be identified by the code. That's, that's how. So they'll be like, oh, this code, or oh, this number, maybe made um, transactions of maybe one million and what, what, what. If you go on, um, it's a blockchain, now it's blockchain.com, but it used to be called blockchain.info, right? Every transaction, every amount that you received into your wallet can be actually traced back to the origin. But no one will know who that person is. So it's anonymous, basically. So I guess it makes it perfect for the black market as well. So is that not where the regulators think should help? So they, they have. So the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force based in Paris, has just recently upgraded their recommendation 15, which talks to digital transactions having to be to comply with anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism financing standards. So that's thrown a bit of a spanner in the works because basically a blockchain is immutable, but it's also private because you have a private key. And so it's almost the same as saying it's like an ID number. Right, so if you just gave somebody a whole lot of numbers, and I know an ID number is you can actually determine when they were born and whether they're male or female, etc. But that's really what you're working off. Now they've got to do more in terms of platforms, and I think this is where Arif and, and, and the regulators are focusing is the on and off ramps uh, from the platforms that actually run the blockchains. I could quickly comment that um, uh, the country they're coming to assess first is. Not on 15. In November. All right. I was told that it was South Africa. So we, we've, we've got a crypto policy paper that's about to be published, and it would uh, cater for some of these, these risks. And as Mark's describing, if you're going to move it from a bank account into a platform, a crypto exchange platform, we're going to, uh, um, we're going to hold those entities as accountable institutions uh, under the FIC Act. Um, and that would then allow for track and trace, as I like to call it. I think also that is already happening. So if you look at certain exchanges, right, there's already KYC, you know, AML and all those things. So they know if there's huge volumes, I know there's people who've called me, say, oh, Yaliwa, why is Luno not accepting my transaction because I transferred this amount? I said, okay, I mean, they need to be sure. They need to, to know why are you transferring such amount of money onto their platform because they have to answer to the regulator. I mean, I think right now you're, you're usually working with the ISPs. So I think, yeah. Okay, we are very behind time, and I know we can talk another hour or so on this topic, and um, we just like to maybe catch up time um, during the, the tea break. However, I think um, 
this has been an interesting conversation. I think we've all learned something, even if you do consider yourself a blockchain or open banking expert, though those don't really exist. Um, and yeah, just thank you very much to our panelists. Um, you know, I think I've told you many times, you are the magic. You are what make these events interesting, and this has been extremely valuable and educational. And thank you very much um, for engaging on this topic. I know it's a bit off. <laughs> it's a bit on a tangent, but thank you very much for engaging with our panelists. We've got some small gifts um, for the panelists, and they'll be around during the tea break. Please come and talk to them, find out more about the events that they'll be holding, the conferences, the um, hackathons, and engage with um, the incumbents in the industry, uh, BankServe, TransUnion, and really make the best use of these resources, even if you are operating within a bank as an entrepreneur or an R&D team. And yeah, so thank you very much. I think um, they deserve a, um, a round of applause. <laughs>